to the KC City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. Rain. Amen. Thank you, Father. Just think about that. What does it, what does, how does that, what does that mean, brother? What does that mean to you that our God reigns? That he reigns in this state, he reigns in this nation, he reigns, he reigns upon the earth. Lord, we thank you. Even today, Lord, as we come before you, Father, as we, as we journey through the Beatitudes, Lord, today, Lord, we see what it means to be, to be blessed. And so, Father, we pray that our hearts would be open. Again, our minds would be ever ready to embrace the truth that you have for us. And we thank you that your truth from your word is always yes and amen. We can stand on that, Lord. And today we want to declare that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because you reign. That our God reigns. My God reigns. We bless you. Lord, and we thank you. Anoint your word. Lord, we pray that you will continue to refresh our minds, Lord, and help us through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We want to welcome you, friends, and thank you for joining us. If you are from uh, outside of Casey City Church, you may be joining us from uh, different um, um, different nations. You may be um, outside of Australia, outside of the state of Victoria, maybe even outside of the city of Casey. We want to really welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Please do do say uh, drop in a line, say hello. Put it in our chat column as well, you know, and um, and just try and just try and connect with us a little bit more. We'd love to get to know you. You know, last week I mentioned that the uh, actually it wasn't last week; it was two weeks ago. I'd mentioned that the Beatitudes are like a it's like a ladder. You know, there are about eight rungs. You know, in the um, I think it's in the uh, Thompson um, uh, reference Bible. Um, it actually does show, I was told that it actually does show a, a ladder. And so this, the, the Beatitudes, they are a way forward and a way upward, I would say, you know, within our Christian walk. So here Jesus begins to outline at, at, the, Mount, at the Sermon of the Mount, at the Sermon on the Mount, rather, um, he begins to give us an, an incredible picture before he sends the disciples out in chapter 10 of Matthew. We will see that from, from chapter 5 onwards. But in particular, the Beatitudes is, is more, like a, it's more like a ladder as you come into the first rung, which is um, poverty in spirit. So it's about you and I coming to a place where we are bankrupt. We feel bankrupt in the spirit. And the next was about really being able to mourn for our personal states. In other words, we come to a point where we repent. We, we repent so much so that we feel you're in our repentance that we cry and that we, 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 we really feel more than just remorseful. It's a sense of feeling this grip in our heart that, God, why, Lord, I don't want to be like this. Lord, I don't want to continue on in, in, this, in this manner or in this fashion. It's, it's, it's that sort of a cry that we have. And it is in that moment that we begin to experience this divine comfort. So I want to ask you and I again, I want to ask us again, how often do we come to that place of feeling real, real 
destitute in a sense, right? That's something that is is important. I never ever looked at the Beatitudes in that sense, and I did mention to you folks, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, when I was speaking on "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." Uh, I used to in 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 growing up, I used to look at the Beatitudes as something that was fairly poetic and quite nice and interesting and flowery, but it but it means way way more than that. Now, Moses, of course, he gave the Ten Commandments from the mountaintop to the Israelites before they had possessed the promised land, right? And here, on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus now addresses the multitudes. You might potentially see pictures of that. Uh, The multitudes on this mountain and shares with them his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. Right? He announces to the Jews who had flocked to hear him that the kingdom of God is now on the threshold. It is at hand, in other words. Uh, if we can come back to those photos again, I'd, I'd like for you to just have a look at that. Now imagine, imagine with me thousands, thousands. You know, the first week when we were, when, when the message on poverty in spirit the introductory message was 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 spoken. We were told that there could have been between ten to fifteen thousand people there. So imagine that, right? People speaking. I mean, people coming to hear Jesus just at that point, and Jesus is preaching to all of them this amazing subject, right? And he preaches this this sermon to to them. Now. There were two groups of people. If you, if you were to look, there, would look at it as two concentric circles. The inner circle was the disciples or the apostles at that point in time. And then the outer circle were people who were onlookers. They were wanting to, wanting to hear a lot about, uh, about Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 29, it says this. So you've got the disciples and you've got the curious people, right? Those who are, those who are really curious, you're wanting to know who this is and what sort of a teaching it is. But in verse 28, it says this, and, and that's where we get the idea from as well. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. So there, there was a clear difference, a marked difference between what Jesus was teaching and what, what the scribes or the Pharisees were trying to teach. So from, from chapters 5 to 7, what we perceive are what I call, what I would term as Christ, uh, our Christ, it's, a, it's our Christian value system. They are ethical standards, they are religious devotions, they are attitudes to money, ambition, lifestyle, and uh, the, the, the network of relationships. Now all of this is a variance as such with the non-Christian world, right? It's generally quite the opposite of a lot of self-help tools or or, or positive talk or a positive talk approach that puts the onus on you making the change. Now, let me explain this further. We must first make the decision to change, right? That's the first step. But we must quickly also realize that it is in partnership with the Holy Spirit and the strict adherence to His Word and, and, and consistency in that adherence to want to see change 
where you and I will then begin to find that true change actually really begins to happen. Right. So the standards of the Sermon on the Mount are, you know, not readily attainable. They're not easily attainable by everyone, but nor totally unattainable by anyone. So let me repeat that. The standards of the Sermon on the Mount are not readily attainable by everyone, nor totally unattainable by anyone. So let's see what our message today entails. So Matthew, uh, Matthew chapters 5 to 9 are significant chapters for us to read. And I'd love to encourage you to continue to read this through our series. Just read it again and again and again. Right? It describes what, what, the, what Christians ought to be. Then shows us actually what they can do. And then he says now, go and do it in chapter 10. He says, go and do it. So he sends out the 12 apostles. We find that in chapter, in, chapters, in chapter 10, actually. But he preps them beforehand. And he shows them, right? He explains them. He explains to them. So he's preparing them. Now, this is what you, and, you, you need to embrace. These are the qualities that you need to begin to embrace. Then he, he then shows them through several miraculous aspects where he begins to heal. And then he says, now you go and do it. So I reckon that before Nike came up with the slogan, just do it, I think Jesus was the one who coined that term. He says, go and do it now. Go and do it. Right? So the Beatitudes is really a, a roadmap for our, Christ, for our Christian walk. You know, I, I, I put it as our Christian KPI. If you look at it from... Uh, from, a, from an employment standpoint, every employer has, you know, when, when you're employed, they, they provide you with what they call key performing indicators, right? So uh, the Beatitudes is something like that, where our lives are measured against that. People measure us against, literally, the Beatitudes, right? And so as we continue our series... A crucial question that we need to ask when we look at every beatitude is, is this. What does this beatitude have to do with God? What does it have to do with God? So today's question is this. What does meekness have to do with God? And folks, why do we need to really ask that question? Now he says this. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is, who is in heaven. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus preached this sermon on the mount so that the Father will be glorified, that he gets, he gets the glory. So he's prepping the disciples. He's explaining to them. He's explaining to the onlookers now, whatever you do now, this is how you live your life so that your Father will get the glory at the end of the day because he's, he is whom that, that empowers us to be able to do all things. And we do all things through Christ Jesus who then begins to strengthen us. So how does becoming meek glorify God's name then? Now in answering this question, we will in fact discover that meekness, whilst being a desirable quality, is a very painful process, friends. It's not something, as I said, that is, 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 is uh, easily attainable by everyone. But... It certainly can. And so there is a process. 
And we'll look at it as we, as we reference uh, Psalm 37. Let's look at Psalm 37 because there is a correlation between Psalm 37 and Matthew chapter 5. And in particular, this verse, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? So Psalm 37 verse 11, it says this, that the meek shall possess the land and, and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So the words in Psalm 37 verse 11 are almost identical with Matthew chapter 5 verse 5. Because the word for land in the Greek and Hebrew, also, it, it also means earth. So as we, as we see what meekness means in this psalm and, and what it has to do with God. Let's try and see that correlation there. What are some of the qualities of meekness? Right? Is it weakness? Is it, is it you and I just allowing ourselves to be bullied or to be walked over? Is it that? Is that what meekness is? So the first aspect of meekness is this, the ability for us to wait for the Lord. So the parallel between verse 11 and verse 9, the v- verse 11 says is, the meek shall possess the land. Right? And in verse 9b, it says this, those who wait for the Lord. This is in Psalms 37, 9b, it says this, those who wait for the Lord shall possess the land. So I pretty much want to conclude this, that the, that the first aspect of meekness is this, that meek people are those who will wait for the Lord. So, but what does it mean now to wait for the Lord? The meek are people who wait for the Lord. Amen. So we see this in, 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 that, in Psalm 37 verses 5 to 8, and you'll find that on your screen right now where it says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your night as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over him who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out and over the man who carries out evil devices. Let me repeat that. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over him who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And the last verse here, it says this, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So there are four critical words here. One is commit, trust, be still, and refrain. So a picture of meekness here. If, if, If I were to give you this assignment, draw this. If you've got your children with you today, wherever they are, just ask them, hey, draw this, draw this picture of meekness. How is it going to look like for you? What are these people like? According to verse 11 and, and verse 9. Well, how do people who wait upon the Lord look like? Right? What does it mean? So in verse 5, it says firstly that they commit their way to the Lord. Then they trust the Lord. And in verse 7, it says that they are quiet or still before the Lord and do not fret or worry or be anxious over others who prosper. And in verse 8, it says this, they refrain, they hold back from anger and they forsake wrath. So let's try and put all of this together now into a picture, into a portrait of how meekness might look for us. 
So the first thing is this. It says, commit your way to God. Now, meet people first. Come to the Lord and commit their way to the Lord in verse, in, in verse 5. The first part of verse 5. Now, the Hebrew word for commit means literally to roll. So meek people have discovered that God is trustworthy. And so they roll their way. So they roll things over to him. They roll their businesses, their problems, their relationship, their health, their fears, their frustration. Oh, I've lost a job. I'm, I'm not going to be worried. I'm going to roll this over to God. I'm going to trust, trust in him. So they roll this onto the Lord. They admit that they are insufficient to cope with the complexities and the pressures and the obstacles of life. And they trust God, who is then now able and willing to sustain them and guide them and protect them. So... We've been hit with this roadmap, and I'm sure it frustrates many, it concerns so many of us, but yet there are decisions that the powers that be have to decide. So they've come up with this roadmap. And what do we do? We can respond negatively, we can respond positively, but can I suggest this, that we roll this over to God? We bring it before him. And the second aspect is this, that we trust. After you commit, then you trust. So meek people then trust God in verse 5b. It says, they believe that he will work for them and vindicate them when others oppose them. Biblical meekness is rooted in this deep confidence that God is for you and not against me and not against you. If God be for us, who can be, who can come against us? Who can be against us? I mean, that is God's promise to us. Isn't it exciting to be able to do that? So in order for us to be meek, if we trust in this promise, it allows us then to be meek. So meekness is not just saying, okay, now you are required to be meek. The Lord just doesn't just give us this, this, this characteristic and say that you are now required to be meek. But he says it and then he provides the ways in which we can actually attain that. And we look at a few examples as well. And the third aspect is, is that be still and wait for him. So after you commit, you trust. Then the next step, the third step is, is that we be still and we wait for him. So according to verse 7a, meek people are quiet or still before the Lord and they wait patiently for him. First, they discover that God can be trusted. Right, then second, or rather first, they, 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 they commit their ways to God. Then they, they commit their ways because they believe that God can be trusted. Amen. And then thirdly, they wait patiently in stillness for the work of God within their own lives. Now, this doesn't mean that they become lazy. Now, it doesn't mean that they are free from being frantic or anything along those lines or being anxious. It doesn't mean that they are, be, that they are free from that. They have a kind of steady calm that comes from knowing a peace that surpasses all understanding that comes from a God that is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing that he has their affairs under control. He's got your life. He's got my life under control, right? That he is gracious and will work things out for the best. All things will work together for good to them who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. And the fourth aspect is, is they refrain. Now, this is hard. This is not easy to hold back, right? To refrain is to hold back. Is to sit back. They don't, they, they, they're, not, they're not concerned or occupied over 
the wicked's prosperity over how people, everyone else, is prospering. And so this aspect in verse 7b is that they don't fret themselves over others' prosperity or how others are going. They don't say things, oh, look at them. They, are, they, they, are, they, they seem to be prospering, but why me? Why me? Why me, Lord? It's that why me kind of a mindset. Their family and work and life are in God's sovereign hands. They trust him. They wait patiently and quietly to see how, how his power and goodness will work things out. And so the setbacks and obstacles and opponents of, of, of life don't really produce the kind of bitterness and anger and fretfulness that is so common among men, that is so common among us. So the picture we have of meekness so far is based on a close parallel to Matthew chapter 5, which is Psalm 37 verse 11. And it is that it, it begins, it really, really begins by the need for us to commit our ways to the Lord. It's to commit this. And when we commit, we commit because we trust. Right? It consists of a freedom from this frenzied or fretful anger. And it is based wholly, again, on, on trusting and rolling this over to God. Right? To commit is to roll this over to God and to wait patiently again. Let's look at a couple of examples here. Now, Moses is one of the greatest examples, I should say, outside of Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see that Moses was referred to as the meekest man. So, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 to 4, while they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Now in verse 2, they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard. Now, Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. And in verse 4 it says, So immediately the Lord called Moses, Aaron, and Miriam and said, Go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. So the three of them went to the tabernacle. And here it describes an occasion where Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses severely. Right? Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had... And, and they said this, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all men that were on the earth, on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out. You three to the tent of meeting. What happens in the following verses is that the Lord rebukes Miriam and Aaron and vindicates his servant Moses. So God begins to, to vindicate because of the meekness of Moses. So we see that when we operate in meekness, we then we, we, we then don't remove from God his authority and his ability to act. But when we begin to act, then we take over God's authority and we begin to act and become as a God. 
right? Now, what is the point of calling Moses meek right here in this context, right between bitter opposition and God's vindication here? I think the point here is that meekness means committing your cause to God and not needing to defend yourself. Just where we would expect to tell the, 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 the text rather to tell us that Moses said that, that Moses said to justify himself against the charge of Miriam what's wrong in justifying himself right it, it is it's actually counterintuitive in, here in a sense to say that the meekest that he is the meekest man on the earth Moses doesn't say a word and that's a counterintuitive thing because the, the immediate thing that we, we would want to do and the immediate thing that rises up from any one of us or from at least most of us is this. Man, I've got to defend myself. I've got to defend myself. Instead, he waits patiently for the Lord. He frets not over these critical words, right? And God comes to his defense. Now, I love another chapter and verse in Isaiah 54, verse 17, where it says, No weapon that is forged, that is formed, that is forged against you, that is fashioned. Some uh, translations use that word fashioned against you will prevail, meaning will continue on. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. And this is the beauty. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So there is something. There is something that happens when in our meekness, when we hold back, it allows God to begin to act. Right? Meekness refrains from revenge and defensiveness. So we can add to our image of, of, of meekness this. Not only does it trust God and commit its ways to God and wait patiently for, for God and refrain from anger, it also refrains from revenge and defensiveness. Meekness gives God the right to be God. We don't take his place and be judge and jury. It is said that meekness is the ability to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. Let me repeat that. Meekness is the ability to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. I remember um, many, many years ago when uh, I took a team to, uh, on a mission trip and we had, we had, uh, some, uh, we had training from, uh, I believe, the Assemblies of God uh, uh, missions uh, department. One of them had come and he had, he had given us this... Um, uh, firstly, he said that, that an important beatitude to add when you're on a mission trip is this. Blessed are the, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. Right? Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. And you know that when you go on a mission trip, man, you just got to be so flexible. Right? But he said this. He said that, you know, it's so vital and important that when you go in the context of criticism, it's like he gave us the picture of a turtle. Have... A hard shell, but a soft interior. So when words are spoken, you, it, 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 just, it, just, it doesn't really enter in. It just falls off. But when you have a soft disposition on the inside, your response then can be soft. Now, obviously, I must say that it's easier said than done. But again, it, it is attainable, friends. So meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. Know this. My beloved brethren, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not work the righteousness of God. In James chapter 1, verse 19 to 21, it says that, 
Therefore, put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Right? Which is able to save your souls. Again, let, let me read that. I, I believe it's on, your, it's on your screens right now. Meekness. Uh, know this, my beloved. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not work the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rank growth of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So there are two kinds of people, friends. James has, had, James has that in mind, and he begins to outline that. Two kinds of people here. He pictures on one hand a, a person who does not like to listen to what other people have to say, especially if they speak with authority. Right? This person is quick to speak and quickly becomes angry if there is a difference or differing of opinion or, or if there is a call to, uh, to his behavior. So in other words, if his behavior is in question, he is not receptive to the word of God. He filters it through his own rights. You know, I, I, I remember many, many years ago listening to this, to, to, to a story. It's called The Pineapple Story, and it's about a missionary that went to, I believe, Papua New Guinea. And, um, and, and if I remember very clearly, it, it was this, that he, had, he, he, he bought this plot of land, and he hired some of the Papua New Guineans to come and to begin to plant these pineapples. And then as they began to grow, they, it, before he could actually harvest them, they harvested that, and they took it, and and it really infuriated him because he was thinking, man, he paid all the money and now he's done this and they are taking this. And because in their mindset, it was whatever they plant, it was theirs. And so this whole tussle of him trying to reach them to Christ was at odds against his own rights. And so it was a lesson that he had to learn and that, and that God began to teach him that it's not about your rights. It's not about learn to give up your rights, right? And so here James pictures another kind of person. The person is slow to speak, giving up our rights, slow to speak, and quick to listen. This person recognizes the limitations of his knowledge and the fallibility of his thinking, and so is eager to listen and learn anything valuable that he can. Right. If he hears something new or contrary to his own view, what, what does he do? His first reaction then is not fretful anger, but it is, hey, let me think about it. This is good. Let me consider this. Right. So when it comes to the word of God, he receives it with meekness. Meekness is teachable. So the new feature of this painting or this portrait of meekness is teachability. To receive the word of God with meekness means that we don't have a particular resistance. We don't resist. We are not hostile to, the, to his spirit when we are being taught. What, are you, what do you catch? Sometimes it is not what is just being taught, but what do you catch when it is being taught? It doesn't mean that you are also gullible, right? It doesn't mean that we will never get angry about what someone might teach. In fact, in verse 19, it says that we should be slow to anger, not that we should not have the experience of anger. And in and, and Matthew eleven twenty nine, you'll see this on your screen as well. It says this, I am meek and lowly in heart. Right? Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, I am meek and lowly. 
in heart. And Mark, th- Mark 3, verse 5, it says this. It says, it says, He became angry and grieved at the heart, hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And in Matthew 21, verse 12 to 13, he drove the merchants out of the temple and turned over their tables. We will soon know that Jesus was the most, was the meekest of all, right? Meekness does not mean the absence of passion and conviction and even indignation to the glory of God. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that it's the absence of all of that. But it does mean that we deal with our triggers, folks. So many of us, there are triggers inside. I know, I mean, I've got triggers. But we need to deal with them. It does not mean that our disposition is one of readiness to listen and learn. Sorry, it does mean that our disposition is one of readiness to listen and learn. Let us be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Right? What is meekness and what is pride then? Meekness is wisdom. The meekness of wisdom. The word of the Lord uses that, the meekness of wisdom. This becomes clearer, even clearer in James chapter 3, verse 13 and 17. And in verse 13, it says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So when we show the works that God desires for us to get into, we show it in the meekness of wisdom. We are wise in how we do that. We, we don't do it from a boastful disposition, right? And, and it, is, it is really an interesting phrase here. The meekness of wisdom. The truly wise people are also truly meek people. We see the correlation between wisdom and meekness. And why is that so? Because verse 17, it says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and it is open to reason. Now that's the reason. It's open to reason. Notice the reason that the truly wise person is also the truly meek person. Now, is that, is that true? Is that true wisdom is peaceable? It is gentle and it is open to reason. But these are the marks of, of, of meekness. Isn't it interesting then we see that the correlation between meekness and true biblical wisdom. So wisdom in the Bible is never just this cognitive ascent. Just, it's, it's not just filling our heads with, with knowledge. It's not just that acquisition. That is, not, that is not wisdom in itself. So I'm wise because I am so smart. I'm so intellectually um, ahead of, of everyone else. It is not that. It is really characteristic of the heart as well as head knowledge. It is having both, you know, both aspects there, right? They're both peaceable, they're gentle, and they're open to reason. So you can see how this now begins to tie back to James chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Back there, we saw that meekness meant being quick to listen and slow to criticize and condemn. But here, meekness is open to reason in this verse, in, 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 in chapter 3, that we see that, right? So what, a, what an amazing, what a beautiful thing for us that to sit on a, on a board with different individuals, 
where when a man speaks, the others begin to listen. That when we are part of a team, when one speaks, others begin to listen and to deal reasonably with what was said instead of just blurting out something irrelevant or making a quick judgment without thinking through the reason for why and what was said. So looking at the intent, let's, let's search the motives. Let's try and understand the motive. So the passage also draws the relationship of meekness to reasonableness, right? And I want to read what one commentator his view on, this, on, on the relationship between meekness and reasonableness. He says it this way. Is not reasonableness basically the willingness to listen to another person's reasons for his opinion and the willingness to give reasons for yours? If I put forward my opinion without giving any reasons for it except that it is my opinion, I would not be acting in meekness. No matter how soft-spoken I might be, on the contrary, I would be acting in an authoritarian way because I would be appealing to nothing outside myself. Now, I think a good deal of confusion at this point about the meaning of, of meekness. We must be aware of confusing certain temperaments with meekness, and hear this carefully again, or with the absence of meekness. A conversation between two people may become passionate and heated and still be marked by meekness. If both of these people are speaking reasonably, that is, if they are defending their opinions by appealing not to themselves, <laughs> but to a standard of truth that is over them and of which we are humble servants. Hence, the word of God is above everything else. So we appeal to the word of God. We appeal to the wisdom from above. But on the other hand, there could be a very soft-spoken. And this is where the confusion lies because we think meekness is this. A very soft-spoken, laid-back conversation between two people in which they express their different or differing opinions. But instead of arguing for them with reasons and submitting themselves together to a higher standard of truth, they give the impression of being very self-effacing by saying that they just want to give their opinion and not argue about it. Let's, let's agree to disagree. <laughs> We've heard that many times, right? No one has to accept my opinion and I don't have to accept anyone else's. Live and let live. Now, too often we think that this is the spirit of, of meekness. Two people making no claim on the other person's opinion. Refusing to submit their own opinion to an independent standard of truth. Unwilling to make themselves vulnerable to the claims of truth and the possible need to admit error. That is not the spirit of meekness, friends. No matter how soft-spoken or self-effacing it looks on the outside, it is not humility. It is self-protecting and truth-effacing. What, what could be more serviceable to the spirit of pride than the view that neither you nor I have to give an account of our opinions before any standard but our own private our own private selves now gk chesterton 
talks about today's culture. And he calls it the dislocation of humility. And he says this, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. (laughs) Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but not undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. We on the road, we are on the road to producing a rare race to mentally modest, too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Right? We've got a different roadmap, friends. We've been introduced to different roadmaps over life. But there is one roadmap that the Bible gives us. The Bible gives us a very clear roadmap for us. We are no longer on that road. Because today's roadmap is not God's roadmap. Now, and, and, and I'm referring to the roadmap that is stated in the Beatitudes. Not referencing anything else. But I leave that to you to choose how you begin to apply this to our current day of living. We have arrived. We have arrived at a place that is, is so difficult to come to terms with. Do I really begin to live this life of, of meekness? Am I not required to speak my mind? Now, I think I've, I've really clearly shared all of that. There's one more quote that I want to share with you before we bring this to a landing. Is Robert Bella in his book, Habits of the Heart. He described the basic culture, today's cultural mindset is this. It is an understanding of life, generally hostile to older ideas of moral order. Its center is the autonomous individual. I will decide. I don't need to confer with others because it might be a waste of time to do that. So I will decide what is good. Presumed able to choose the roles he will play and the commitments he will make, not on the basis of higher truths, but according to the criterion of life effectiveness as the individual judges it. Who says that we have that ability and have the wisdom to make such judgment. But it is God. And if we don't have God, our judgments are never clear. And it'll never be just. It will always be contrary to God. So friends, the roadmap that is given to us in the Beatitudes is one that will guarantee us as we live that life. Is it easy? No, it's not easy to. But is it attainable? Yes, it is. It is definitely attainable, right? This world that we live in, this spirit of this age, this current atmosphere is not, is is an atmosphere that we need to really consider. 
is an atmosphere that we need to really discern. And unless, unless we are extraordinary alerts, we will embrace it right into our lives and into our churches. And it is so prevalent in today's context. And one of the ways that it will make its way into the church is if we are so naive as to mistake it for meekness. Now, meekness, it cares about the truth. So let me say this again. Meekness of wisdom is, is open to reason. It is quick to listen to reasons given by others for their opinions. And it is willing to give reason for its own opinions. It cares about truth, whether others agree. It really cares about that. And do we see that exemplified? Enough. And therefore, it may become passionate and forceful, but it is always a servant. It is always submissive to a higher standard of truth. It is always willing to change to bring its opinion into line with truth. Now, meekness knows its own fallibility as such, right? But for that reason, it takes arguments. It takes debates. It takes them seriously. It wants to discern its own errors. It wants to check itself and forsake them. But the soft-spoken conversation in which two modern people defer to each other's opposite opinions, not feeling the need to submit his opinion to a standard of truth higher than himself and thus not exposing himself to the possibility of error and repentance, that is not the spirit of meekness. I want to say that again. That is not the spirit of meekness. So as we conclude, I want to conclude with this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the, the earth is our sphere of jurisdiction. Right? The effect that Jesus wants this promise to have is simply this. That, that he, and he explains this and he shares this and he preps the disciples with this. So those who are sitting there at that mountaintop, before they go out, before they go out and they begin to experience the power and authority that is within their grasp, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, healing, they begin to experience this power that they have never experienced before. So they need some measure of knowing that they need to be meek. That it is meekness. It is, it is under control, right? This is the way that the promise works in verse 12. It said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, the promise of great reward gives the disciples strength to endure persecution with joy. So I think the promise that, that the meek shall inherit the earth is intended by the Lord to give us strength to endure in meekness when the natural inclination would be to defend ourselves or retaliate or give way to worried or fretful anger, right? All things, everything is given unto us. The, the, the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says this in verses 18 through 23. And Paul tries to help us overcome pride by saying this. Let no one deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness again and again. The Lord knows that the, that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So let no one boast of men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God. So now notice the, 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 the logic in verse 21. It says, let no men boast for all things are yours. And one of the things mentioned is the world. You shall inherit. So the world is yours. Don't boast because the world is yours. Does that, does that in any way make sense to us? That God has already made you and I to inherit the world. Now, would I feel the need to brag that my house is, my house is bigger than yours or, I, or, or that I knew that my father owned the city and I was the beneficiary of his will? Do I need to boast about that? I don't need to. And against our own sinful nature, the quietness, openness and vulnerability of meekness is really, is, is, is really both attractive and it is painful. When it goes against all that we are by our sinful nature, it requires, it requires this one thing, supernatural help. Guys, we need, friends, we need supernatural help. It cannot be done on your own. I mean, can, can you imagine to resist? I mean, husbands and wives, I think meekness is displayed in that context in a huge way, right? Kids and parents. So if you and I, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, sitting at, sitting at his feet, Listening to this, this morning, if you trust him and commit your way to him and wait patiently for him, God has already begun to help you and will help you more. He wants to assure you that you are a fellow heir of Christ Jesus, that you're seated with him in heavenly places and that what Jesus has inherited, he came, he paid the price, so he took the world back. And he has now made us joint heirs with him. Isn't that exciting? That we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Now, he wants to assure you that, that everything is yours. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not freely then give us all things with him? All things. No good things will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So friends, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? And now as we come to the table this morning, as you get your emblems out, I want us to take just a moment and begin to reflect, friends. You know, if this was our regular church service, we'll have an altar call right now. We'll invite people to come forward to begin to respond. And where you are, friends, you can respond as you come to the table of the Lord because the table of the Lord is such a clear indication for us today. It, it is a tremendous reminder, right? It is a great example of meekness here. You know, Jesus firstly shows us that. Amen. When Pontius Pilate asked him the question, his response was, as you have said so. Right? Because there was something deep. 
that was that was his deep confidence. He knew who he was, and he knew whose he was. Right at the garden, despite going through that 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 anguish, he says, "Father, not my will, but yours." Right, and at the cross, he says, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do." Who is it that we need to forgive today, church? is it that we need to forgive what are some of the things that we've said that we need to potentially take into account bring things under his subjection right now and know that God has things in control you know we're living in a very very difficult day and age with all these voices that are screaming for our attention, do this, do that, do, you know, fill this uh, petition, do that, do, you know. I'm not saying don't do any of that. But what I'm saying is this, friends, have you applied the wisdom of God in all of what we do? Because God is in control. Doesn't mean that God is not in control. God is in control because that's the God we serve. That's the truth we need to believe. And that's what we need to acknowledge. That's what we need to declare and decree more and more again and again. God, you are seated on the throne. My trust is in you. Some may trust, as, as Stuart said, some may trust in horses, some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. We will trust. That is meekness. Where we come and we wait. We commit, we trust, we wait. And we refrain. This is, this is meekness. So thank you as we partake of this. We acknowledge his death, but we also acknowledge his victory. He's not dead. My God is not dead. My God is not dead. He's strong and so mighty. There's nothing that my God cannot do for you. Amen. There's nothing. So, Lord, as we come to this table, we acknowledge that you're alive. And because you're alive, we embrace your life. And we thank you that you will give us this ability and this power to come to bridle. One of the things of meekness is the ability to bridle. So, Lord, we bridle through the strength that you give. We bridle our tongue. We bridle our abilities. We, bri we bridle our, our desires, Lord. And as we partake of this bread and of this cup, we thank you for the grace that's been released through the death on the cross and through your resurrection. So let's partake of this cup together in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your bread. You know, after partaking of that bread, he looked at his disciples and he said, because he knew where he was going to, and he wanted to make sure that this covenant, this Passover, where they were, that the symbolic wine that they had to drink was, symbolizes the blood. The blood that was shed for you and I. This life-giving blood that now has been given to us. So as we partake of this cup, what we're saying is this, Lord, I take, your, I take on your life. 
I know by the example that you provided that you have given us the ability to be meek. And we actually can attain that. But we confess our need for that right now in Jesus' name. And let's seal that commitment today with partaking of this cup together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. You know, I don't know about you, but man, it's, it, it excites me to know that I know with God, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. So I want to invite us into, into the song, Shout to the Lord. And after that, Pastor Kev's going to come and explain to us about our Zoom rooms, and we would love for you to please join us. Take some time. Let's, 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 let's get deeper into this. Let's share our thoughts. Let's share testimonies of how, because I know so many of you have exemplified this quality as well and, and what the outcome has. And also let's share that when we didn't, what, what, what has that, you know, what sort of, a, what sort of fruit did we reap from that. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Thank you.